If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when a completeness comes, what is part this what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Thanks, Annie. Thanks, Annie. Thank you. So <clears throat> after all that, let me ask you a question about love. Sorry. Oh, I missed the last bit. I don't know how I did that. Do you want to read these, Annie? And now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these three are love. But the greatest of these is love. How could I forget that bit? Okay, so now let me ask you a question about love. So is love driven by something internal? So is it something that that um, is a desire or a commitment? Or is it driven by something external? For example, a person or a cause? Hmm. Why not both? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Could be both, well, that's right. So what sort of things, if it's both? So, um, according to Tim Nugent's sermon ages ago, um, yep. yeah, yeah. Um, the only love that doesn't have its own internal driving force is agape. The others are all driven by something else. And I remember that, it was about something I thought it was a really, really wise insight. <laughs> There you go, Tim. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Yeah, so, like, if something's internal, you know, basically, if someone's serving and they're thinking about why am I doing this, they think I'm doing this, I'm serving God. I'm doing this to serve Christ. And they, they feel that's what God wants them to do, or they, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna feel blessed. They're gonna be more in place with God. But if they're just looking at their externals, it's not gonna work, is it, for too long? 
So it can be taken both ways, right? It's, it, it is a very hypothetical question and it depends on what you mean by driven. What's driving love? And I think, I think Tim's probably right. It's, it's, it can be both. But, um, but it depends on what is doing it. So let's look at a real life example. Driving love is picking me up at church. When I googled what is loving, just those words, what is loving, because what is love is a bit generic, I thought loving would be a little more specific. The first entry wasn't that, that wasn't a dictionary entry or a psychological definition, which Google seems to love, um, was from the Guardian newspaper, which is slightly left-wing newspaper. That's a, an understatement, by the way. Titled, What is Love and Is It All in the Mind? And it started with this, and I quote, We crave romantic love like nothing else. We'll make unimaginable sacrifices for it, and it can take us from a state of ecstasy to deepest despair. But what's going on inside our heads when we fall in love? And I mean that quite literally, as you can tell. The American anthropologist Helen Fisher describes the obsessive attachment we experience in love as someone camping out in your head. In a groundbreaking experiment, Fisher and colleagues at Stony Brook University in New York State put 37 people who were madly in love into an MRI scanner. Their work showed that romantic love causes a surge of activity in brain areas that are rich in dopamine the brain's feel-good chemical. Similar brain areas light up during the rush of euphoria after taking cocaine. So that's the quote. And my response to that is, in other words, love is a drug. (laughs) So, Now, this is just talking about romantic love, but the title of the article just talks about love as if no qualification is needed, as if romantic love is love, and that's, that's it. So the Guardian, as well as our world, I think, thinks that love is entirely some internal drive, like a drug user's desire for stimulation. Their perspective is to, to look inside your brain and see what your brain's doing. They're not looking at the one you love. They're not looking at, at any spiritual motives, because there is no spiritual. So... It's all, it's all psychological or even physical. It's all electrons firing for them. But I think you'd agree with me that Paul's definition of love, God's love, couldn't be more different from that. Right? Paul doesn't say, when God's loving, his brain is firing dopamine stuff. <laughs> So let's look at the next three of those descriptions of love. And I'm going to actually start from the last one. Uh, And you'll see why. Because the three descriptions are not arrogant, not rude, and not self-seeking. I think that this seventh description, not self-seeking, is the seventh in Paul's list. There's something like... um, um, 18 or 19, so it's not the middle. I, it would have been wonderful it was, if it was right in the middle of the list and I could have gone, yeah, the seventh and middle of the list, but it's just the seventh. 
I think this is a key description of what love is. You might, you might remember that last week I attempted to define love as a commitment to act for the good of another. And you could say that this is the positive, that that was the positive version of, of this description of Paul's. Um, but again, we've, we've got to be careful with our words here. What does Paul really say? I don't want to put Paul, words into Paul's mouth. As it happens, Paul uses three Greek words. The word for not, which is not a very exciting word, so I haven't shown you that. The word for self, uh, which is not that interesting. It's autos, like auto. Um, and the word zeteo, here, which is which is often translated as seek. You can see over here, the blue is the most common translation. And it's a common word occurring 117 times in the New Testament. So it's used a lot. And you can see that it it has a fairly broad range of meaning related to searching for something, asking for it, wanting it, demanding. You know, it's, it's, it's... it's about the desire for something. But in contrast to other Greek words in the same general meaning, zeteo carries the meaning of a very active, persistent search. So you can see that in the most famous verses where this word is used. For example... It looks like Simon is seeking some, some chocolate. <laughs> yeah, is it tail the chocolate? Whatever chocolate is in Greek. <laughs> don't think there's a Greek word for it. No, I don't South think America so. Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> so this is an example of seek, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Or... For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So these two verses demonstrate both God's love in seeking us, hunting us down, pursuing us in this verse, and in the previous verse, our need to embrace God's love by earnestly looking for every opportunity to bring it into this present reality. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. In fact, just three chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul had already stated this principle in a positive way. He said, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. I think this really brings out the nature of Christian love. The world's love is driven, as we've seen, by dopamine hits or selfish desires. I have the right is the cry of the world, as Paul accurately captured it 2,000 years ago. So things haven't changed much in the last 2,000 years. People are still yelling out, I have the right. But Christian love isn't concerned about our own rights. It isn't actually concerned about itself at all. Christian love never asks, 
what am I getting out of this? Or is this good for me? It's too busy asking, is this good for my neighbour? So, what are some of the things we ask ourselves, like those questions, is this good for me, what am I getting out of it, that get in the way of caring for others? So, any, any, yep, Neil? Just our lives is full of busyness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do I have and time for this? Like, yeah. Um, and like, you know, and we might say, well, there's nothing wrong with chopping wood with the axe. But then, you know, we dropped a little bit of water. There are other more important things we could be doing. Yeah. You know, priorities were. It's so easy just to, to fill, fill our lives with activity and yeah. busyness. Yeah. I think selfish ambition or um, actually thinking about yourself instead of not thinking about yourself. I think that in itself is an issue because you're not really doing it from the right mindset. Yeah. Yep. Right. You can think, is, is that a Ford that they're driving if someone's pulled over and put it is that a point? Yep. Are they like me or are they, they you know, like, are they appealing aliens. to me? Yeah. Are they adults? A- aliens. Oh, aliens. <laughs> All <or> nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So are they, are they strangers or friends? Strangers. Yeah. If they're driving a Ford, they're a friend, right? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's something we can ask ourselves that we get in the way of carrying. Yeah, that yeah, that's right, situation. yeah. And that's exactly what some people are worried about now in the situation with, with Russia. Some people are, some Russians in Australia are worried about admitting that they're Russian because they're afraid that we're not going to be able to love them because of the situation. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's, that's a question that people do ask themselves constantly. Mm-hmm. Is this person my friend or my neighbour or my, mm-hmm. my, my countryman? No, no. I think sometimes if you get stuck thinking, um, will I get hurt doing this? Mm. Can I bear the cost of this? Mm. Yeah, what's the cost? Yep. Is this person worth it? Any other questions that you've run into? It doesn't have to be questions you ask yourself. <laughs> Some of the things that I think about are if you decide to, say, help a homeless person or a person who's a victim of something that's dangerous, whatever, um, what are the implications of that? You know, mm-hmm. Could you so, so say, get your hands dirty mm-hmm. with that? Yeah. By, you know, then you could have someone after you or, you know... They could end up stealing from you, you know. Yeah. What, whatever could, repercussions could come from, instead of just doing it. Yeah, that's right. You get all these other things coming in. You get, let's say, uh, like you just said, is it worth it? Yeah. And you shouldn't. Uh, that shouldn't be a thing, but it is. It's just, I, it's I really struggle with homeless people or people in need in that sort of instant. Like yesterday, in the mall. Or behind the Maya Centre, we walked down and there was a, a guy lying sprawled on the, the footpath with uh, sort of a cup beside his outstretched hand. And, um, you know, you sort of... 
there were other people around and you sort of ask yourself, does this person need my help, right? Do they really need any help? Uh, and that's sort of the instant first question that I ask myself and, and um, it's such a good way to cop out of not doing anything. <laughs> so as we were waiting for our, our drinks just a little bit down the road, the ambulance pulled up a, a, about a minute later. So he obviously needed some help. Brad? But another example I've seen on an advertisement is if somebody has like an axe or a chainsaw and you're contemplating giving them a ride. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is this person safe? <laughs> yeah, anyone on Zoom got any ideas? Sometimes I think um, we think it's too hard to help others. And like your example with the, the homeless guy, mm. I think sometimes we think, well, if we give him money, he's just going to go and buy alcohol or cigarettes and not do something good with it. We sort of judge how they're going to use what we're going to give someone. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes they just simply don't want help or won't accept it, won't trust their help. Yeah. But I also think it's our own judgment that thinks that we are allowed to determine how they use what we give to help them with. <laughs> yep. It's our resource, so we want to stay in control of it even after we've given it to somebody. So don't give money. <laughs> Go on, sorry. Don't give money, give product, give food. Yeah, yep. So were there any other answers to that? I don't know whether I'm going to work this way, but sometimes when you try to do something good for someone, are you doing it because you're helping them or are you doing it because it makes you feel mm. more mm. important? Yep. And that struggle of don't let go. Yeah, so asking... Are you doing it with the right motive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or even if you are doing it with the right motive, is this also going to fuck me up because I'm doing it? Yeah, we can get caught in this sort of. Yeah. Neil. <laughs> There's a guy in the Bible, in the Gospels, and Jesus says, Do you want to get well? Yeah. You know, and I think that's a, a very interesting question. That not yep. everybody is interested in being well and being helped. Yeah. I guess a, a final question, too, might be. Do I actually have the resources to help this person? Um, or are they going to... It's sort of a variation of like what Nicole said and stuff. That are they going to, to completely exhaust my resources? I think part of that is the best kind of giving is the one that's sacrificial, I think. Mm. If you're doing it with trusting God, and I think that's the one God rewards the most as well. Yeah. God sees the most. Yeah. You're actually doing it despite the fact that it's incurring... I mean, obviously there's a responsibility for your family and you give something and then you can't feed your family that night. I think that's irresponsible and you're not actually taking care of your own needs first before others. But if there's something you can give that does cost you something, takes maybe a pleasure out of your life, but is in turn helping a person, mm. I think. Yeah. There's a big difference in that. It seems like Paul's, Paul's asking us to, to love in ways that have no sort of protections for us, right? It mm. seems like he's... He's asking us to just abandon ourselves and just give. And to worldly ears, this type of selfless love sounds incredibly dangerous. 
surely you're opening yourself up to abuse even, to being taken advantage of. But I think there are two things that we need to remember. One, the first one, it's not loving to encourage selfishness in others. And second, you have a mighty defender in God who allows us to focus on the other person's needs, not ours. So that first point, think about Jesus. He's the definition of God's love, right? And his life here on earth was God's love expressed in human form. And yet he didn't let people push him around. He... His mothers and brothers tried. Satan tried. The Pharisees and scribes tried. They all tried to push him around. And yet Jesus refused to bow to their control because it's not loving to reward abusive or controlling behavior. And so Jesus felt no, no um, hesitation in lovingly preventing them from controlling him. The key is that Jesus wasn't focused on protecting himself. That wasn't his concern. He was focused on restoring the souls of those around him. And we can see, for example, in Luke chapter 13, verses 31 to 35, an example of this. At that, at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. So they didn't care if Herod killed Jesus. They just wanted to get rid of him because he was a thorn in their side. He replied, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. So Jesus knew, Jesus knew that God was in control. And he actually knew that he was going to die. And he knew that that was what God had for him. And he was cool with that. That was, that was fine with him. He was completely relaxed with God's plan for his life and death. He wasn't trying to prevent his death. He wasn't trying to stay alive for longer. He was just focused on the people around him, on serving them, and loving them, and he would, would happily push back and even call people names if they, if they tried to prevent him from loving, from showing God's love. Why so, that easily, though? He sweat, sweat blood, tears, so... <laughs> exactly. This is his heart. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed, I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus' heart is, is for the people that he's serving. And he won't let anything get in the way of them receiving God's love. In his response to this demand from the Pharisees, we see his deep concern for the people of Israel and, and the way that that leads him to resist the Pharisees' bullying. And we can, be, we can do the same. We can be unselfish without being a pushover. 
Being unselfish doesn't mean being a pushover. It means that when we stand up to other sins, we're not doing it to protect ourselves. We're doing it to protect them from their own sins. And that makes a world of difference to how we do it. Right? You could say that the rest of Paul's description of love here in 1 Corinthians 13 is a lesson in how, to, how we selflessly love people who are trying to selfishly exploit us. Which leads us back to the two previous definitions of love. The two prior words in Paul's definition of love are, in a way, merely an expression on the idea of love not being self-seeking. The word that I've listed as not rude, the NIV translates as does not dishonour others. And that's actually a pretty accurate reflection of the Greek. This is the Greek word. It's a rare word in the New Testament. It only occurs twice, both in 1 Corinthians. So let's look at how it's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honourably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning, they should get married. So there are also two uses of the noun form of this verb. So there's four uses of this general word, two verbs, two nouns. And they're in Romans and Revelation where the word is translated as referring to shameful sexual acts. There's a clear connotation of sexual immorality in the way the Bible uses this word. However, the word itself doesn't have that limited meaning. And if Paul meant it to be just that limited, then he could have, he could have used words that only meant that. But he didn't. He, Paul isn't afraid of talking about sex. Right? He, he's very blunt when he's talking about sex. Rather, Paul seems to be talking here about a broader range of behaviour that's as destructive and ugly as sexual sin. So sexual sin is sort of the, the model of the behaviour, but it's not the limit. It's an example of the behaviour. And it includes that as well. So, so this is not, when it says not rude, it doesn't just mean he doesn't, that love doesn't say thank you and please and you know, dot its I's and cross its T's. It means that love never treats someone as an object to be merely used for one's own needs and then discarded. Love never does that because, of course, love is not self-seeking. So why would it do that? So this is just a reflection for you. I forgot to hand out the sheets. So... Matthew, do you want to grab those sheets and just hand them around? So, sorry, people. The, yeah. If you wanted to write down... So the reflections are just for you to reflect on. I'm not going to ask you to answer these. But if you just jot down some ideas. Um, so what are some of the ways that you have seen people dishonoured by others and how could you honour them instead? So remember, this dishonour is a really powerful sort of, um, really powerful disregard for people, uh, a really doing ugly things to them, because you you just treat them like an object. 
So how have you seen people treated like objects and how could you how could you honor them as human beings instead? So just think about that and if you want to jot it down if you're multitasking, otherwise you can wait until we finish. <laughs> the next word and the final of the three words is that the description for uh, not arrogant. The Greek here, physio, actually means puffed up, as in having an inflated view of one's own importance. And we've already seen love described as not, not inflated, right? So what, sorry, not boasting. Yeah, it's like being full of hot air, but it's a bit different because that sort of Im- implies that the hot air is coming out because we talk about hot air as, as boasting. So we've already seen the, the, the definition of love as not boasting, which, which meant inflating yourself with words, and this is just being inflated. So love is neither love neither inflates itself with words or is inflated in general. It's, it's just not puffed up at all. Love is, love's not self-seeking. It never views itself as important because it's too busy thinking about the needs of others to, to, to be concerned about itself, to be puffing itself up. And, and some people, if, if you're trying to understand this concept, you think about people who walk into a room and expect every eye to be drawn to them. They expect, they expect to be served, right? They expect to be listened to. They expect to be obeyed. Love is nothing like that. Love walks into a room and it's looking around for opportunities to serve people, to encourage people, to build people up, to care for people. In fact, this reminded me of this song. So you probably are humming the, the song to yourself, just reading these words. I, I can't read the, you know, you walked into. <laughs> so you can see if you're a certain age, you're, you're going to be you're gonna be singing this song. <laughs> yeah. So so this is a song from Carly Simon and it's it's just such a delightful song. It's so it's got a great a great hook and a great melody, but but the words are just so they skewer this haughtiness that's precisely the opposite of love. And everyone knows how how annoying and irritating and despicable a character like this is. So so the the beautiful skewering of this is such a joy to, to hear because it resonates in us. So um, what are the areas in which you struggle with vanity? Do you? This is a reflection, so I don't need you to answer this out loud. Um, do you? Str- I think we all struggle in some way or another: intellectual appearance, organisation, relationships, because vanity gets in the way of of love. Love is not inflated; it doesn't think better of itself than it really is. 
So, how do we apply all this to our lives? How do we actually live out this love? Graham was talking a bit about it before and Nicole's sort of talked about how hard it is and so we've been looking at God's love and I think I think it's actually very simple but it's that sort of simplicity that's very difficult. So it's 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 not complicated but it's hard. I think there are two basic steps. The first step is to give ourselves over to God. And that means to trust that when we seek first his kingdom everything else will be given to us. To really trust that promise. You know, the promise boxes that you get with all the promises, they're actually a lot of the promises that they claim aren't really promises to us. But this one is. This is a promise to Jesus' disciples. If we seek first the kingdom, everything else, all the things that we need, all the things that we worry about, will be given to us. But that's really, really hard to do. The second thing, and I can't tell you how to do that because it's a skill. It's not, it's not an intellectual thing. It's a skill that you have to practice. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's just an exercise of the will and practice. The second thing is to love with God's love, to be completely focused on the needs of the other. So... So one question I think that we need to ask ourselves is what concerns, what worries must we place into God's hands today and tomorrow in order to love him and others without worrying about ourselves? So what things do we carry around all the time that stop us loving God and stop us loving others? If we can... If we can if we can understand them, then we're on the way to loving like God. So let's pray. Lord, let our prayer every morning be, Oh Father, help me today to always be looking for ways I can be your ambassador your citizen here on the Gold Coast. Help me to prioritise your purposes, your kingdom, your plans, above everything else, even my own desires. And help me to trust that while I'm focusing on loving loving you and the people around me that you've given me to love, help me to trust that you will take care of all my needs for today, just as you promised me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.